Welcome to RUF. What we hope and pray um, that this is for you, whether this is your umpteenth time or your first time, we hope that you find this to be a safe place to come and examine the truth claims of Christianity no matter what you think about them. If you think they're really bunk, we want this to be a safe place for you to come and deal with them um, and your opinion that they're bunk. And if you love them and trust and rest in them, we hope this is a rest stop for you in the middle of your week. And tonight, we come to one of the most integral, most fundamental, most foundational truth claims of Christianity itself. And that is that the Christ of God, Jesus of Nazareth, died. And that's what we're going to read about tonight. So you've got the passage there in your handout. If you want to read with me, um, I will start in verse 18. There's a lot here in chapter 23, but I'm going to start in 18 and read to the end of the chapter. They all cried out together, away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But they delivered Jesus, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, at, hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, he wrapped it in a linen shroud, and he laid it in a tomb and cut in stone where no one has ever yet laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and, and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Flannery O'Connor, I don't know how many of y'all have read her or heard of her or heard of, you, heard of her in classes or not, but she was a great Southern writer. She wrote a ton of short stories and a couple of novels. Her short stories um, are the best. She was an amazing writer. Um, I encourage you to pick her up if you ever find a book, a collection of her short stories. But she was once asked if she could give the main point of one of her short stories in a nutshell. And kind of her humor and her bluntness, she replied very directly... If I could put the meaning of the story in a nutshell, I wouldn't have had to write the story. I think, I hope you've kind of seen that in the gospel of Luke as we've gone this semester. That there's a lot of things in this gospel, but they're all uh, there. They all serve a purpose. They're all leading us to the same place. And they're all there for the purpose. And I think that illustration of putting it in a nutshell aptly applies to this passage specifically. Because when you come to something like the cross of Christ... How can you condense that, right? How can you condense that in 25, 30 minutes on a Wednesday night? There's a sense in which all things uh, have led to this point in Jesus' life and now his death. But this is the thing. Crucifixion was not uncommon. It was actually very common in this period of history. Thousands upon thousands of people died at the hands of crucifixion. Some of the worst criminals even. And many more would come after Jesus in the name of Jesus and be crucified. It was not something unique that was happening to Jesus. But here we have it in Luke 23, the cross of Christ. And we've been asking the question this semester, Doctor Who. Luke has told us, he told Theophilus and he's telling us that I want you to have more certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And this passage is no different. And what Jesus, what Luke is telling us is, this is what he's telling us in a nutshell, in Luke 23. It happened. People were there. It was not a mistake. We didn't get it wrong. It's true. And you can rely on it. Jesus died died. He was killed. He was murdered. He was crucified. His body was brought down lifeless from a cross and laid in a tomb where no other body had lain. 
It happened. So I want to see three things. If you have the note-taking type, you got them there in your handout. The road of the cross, the story of the cross, and the salvation of the cross. And the first one is just the road of the cross. And there's a sense in which, I don't know if you felt this at all, but there's a sense as we began reading this passage and you knew what was coming, right? Because the title is Jesus died. Uh, but there's a sense in which we get to verse 33, right? And the crucifixion itself is kind of really anticlimactic, is it not? All Luke tells us is they got to the place and there they crucified him. That's all we're told. They got to the place and there they crucified him. But if you've been with us this semester or if you've ever read the gospel for yourself, what you hopefully have gotten a sense of is this. The whole story has built up to this moment. The whole thing. It has all led to this place, the foot of the cross of the Christ of God, Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. And I just want to illustrate this for you really quickly by reading just uh, through a, a little selection of the gospel of Luke where we've been so far. Some things we've looked at and some things we haven't. One thing we didn't look at is it, when, G, when Jesus is only days old, Joseph and Mary take Jesus, the baby, to the temple to consecrate him to God, to, to, to worship God on Jesus' behalf and his birth and everything. And there's a, we're told that there was a prophet there named Simeon who then begins to prophesy in Mary's presence. And this is what she says to Mary, who has a baby in her arms. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And in parentheses, Luke puts, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Luke chapter 2, Jesus is days old and it's already there. Okay? Chapter 9 is really when it started poured on thick, and we saw this in a couple of passages that we look at. First, Jesus tells his disciples for the first time very clearly, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough for the disciples, in the very next breath, you'll remember him saying this, if anyone would then come after me, he must also take up his cross daily. Right? Then in the next passage, we read about the transfiguration as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain and he's transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah come down and they're there talking to Jesus. It's an amazing sight. And we're told that they're very specifically talking about one thing, his departure, which he was about to accomplish. How did he depart? The crucifixion. Then he comes down from that mountain in chapter 9, and there's a boy there that no one can heal. And so Jesus, in frustration with the disciples' unbelief, says, here, let me do it. And he heals the boy, and everybody's marveling. Yay, Jesus is victorious again. He takes his disciples aside, and he says this. Let these words, this is a quote, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then we read in verse 51 of chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that's only a very small snippet there up to chapter 9. Uh, from chapter 9 to chapter 22, Jesus talks about it over and he talks about a baptism he needs to be baptized with again. He tells the Pharisees the son must suffer first. He keeps repeating it. But up to chapter 9, when we read in there in verse 20 that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew where he was going and he knew why he was going there to die. 
He was very clear about that. The cross was no accident, nor was it mere sentimentality. It wasn't meant to be just a necklace that anyone from the most ardent Christian to Kim Kardashian could wear around their neck. Right? No offense to Kim Kardashian. The cross dominated the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus knew it. He knew it. Luke has repeatedly shown us, in the, shown us in the sayings of Jesus himself that Jesus deliberately walked the road of the cross his entire life. He knew where he was going. It's the heart of Luke's message, and now it's the culmination of the entire story. It's as if on every single page of this gospel, Jesus is, um, Luke is reminding us over and over again, Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. And now we're here in chapter 23. One commentator puts it this way. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? One commentator put it this way. He said, In the same way, let no reader imagine that he has begun to understand the Christ of the gospel, indeed, or the gospel of Christ, unless the cross has come to dominate his horizon also. Only when he has sought it and reached it and let it fill his vision, can he say that he is beginning to see what the Christian faith is all about. Here's what this means, y'all. Wherever you find yourself tonight, if what you think about yourself in the sight of God is not dominated by the cross of Jesus Christ, you have entirely missed it. Entirely If the cross of Christ is not center and overarching in every single thing when it comes to you thinking about your relationship to God, you have missed it. It dominates Jesus' life and his ministry. The death of of Jesus dominates everything. And I don't know, for some of you, what holds you back. There's some of you in here tonight that you're holding back. Or you would say something's holding you back. And I don't know what that is. Maybe, maybe you have problems with the Bible. Plenty of people do, right? Maybe your problems with the Bible are historically, right? As far as you don't understand why some books are in the Bible and some aren't. Where, when was that decision made? How did that come about? Maybe that's what holds you back. Maybe your problem is scientific. You just don't know if you can trust a book when you don't really think everything that it says happened, happened. Maybe your problems are moral or ethical, right? You just don't know if you can believe in a book that says some of the things it says about certain types of sexuality or gender roles. Maybe you have problems with the gospel, with Jesus, with Christianity because of the church, because of the people that claim him, because you've been there. And oftentimes what you found is things that are no different than the things you find on this campus. Racism. Homophobia, political nut jobs, right? Whether light, white, right wing, or left wing, they're both there. Let me hear me say this: those things are not unimportant. I don't. I would never dismiss any of them, right? But here's what I'm saying. Christianity claims that the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, together with what we'll look at next week, his resurrection, they sum up what the Bible says is the most foundational event of all of history. 
from its beginning to its end. It's all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into this world, dying on the cross, and being raised on the third day. And so what I want to offer to you is whatever your problems, your hang-ups, whatever it is tonight, let me at least encourage you in this. If you are going to dismiss Christianity, if you're going to dismiss the Bible, if you're going to dismiss Jesus or the gospel, at least do it on the grounds that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have no credibility to you. Because if you have not dealt with God and Jesus there first, you've missed it. All the roads of the story, this religion, this faith system, all of them lead to this Jesus. And we've been asking the question this semester, what is so compelling about this Jesus? All the gospel writers would tell you this, the cross of Christ. That is what is so compelling. The road of the cross. That's the first one. The second one's this, the story of the cross. There's something that this is telling us. There's a story that Luke is telling us in the events surrounding Jesus' death. What is it? Well, look again. You look at verse 33. All we're told is when they got to the place, they crucified him. That's what we're told, right? And you'll notice what's missing, maybe. Maybe you notice this. The gruesome details If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ or any other uh, movie or play about the crucifixion of Jesus, you will note that there is a lot more given to movies and plays about what is actually happening at the cross on that hill than the gospel writers ever give it. It's not that that wasn't real. It's not that the gospel writers aren't concerned about it, but that's not the point. The point is not for you to look at Jesus and see how much he suffered and feel sorry for him and say, okay, yeah, I'll follow him. That's not the point. There's a story being told. It was considered to be the worst form of execution to date due to the excruciating pain and the public spectacle of it all. But it's not the point of the story, the gruesome details in and of themselves. Look at verses 27 and 28. I wonder if you've ever read these. These are are 28 and 29. 28 and 29. Uh, these, these words of Jesus are unique to the gospel of Luke. Um, most likely he heard them from some of the women that he interviewed to make his gospel. But we read that they're, they're following this procession and they're weeping. And Jesus turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. And what Jesus says, it, doesn't, it does not make sense, does it? Because here we have a whipped, beaten, mocked man carrying the cross of his execution, and he is innocent. He hasn't done anything. So wouldn't it be natural to weep for him? This is wrong. It is. But what does Jesus say? In this moment, the greatest moment in all of history, do not weep for me. Weep for yourself. The message of the cross is not to be overwhelmed with pity or guilt for Jesus. It's rather decidedly not about how he suffered, but why. Why did he suffer? Luke very clearly showed us, you saw this, Pilate 
three times, tries to secure the release of Jesus, but he can't. Herod himself, who had earlier sought to kill Jesus, sends him back to Pilate in a passage we didn't read. The leaders that are accusing Jesus, all they can do is make up charges to condemn him. The criminal next to him says, can't you see this man is innocent? The crowds, when it's all over, they go away beating their breast. Surely this man was innocent. The centurion says what everyone is thinking. Surely this man was innocent. So the question is clear. If it was not his own sin that hung him on the cross, what was it? And that's where Jesus' answer, do not weep for me. Weep for yourself. Here it is. In the cross of Christ, we see God dealing with our most fundamental problem, our own sin and the judgment it deserves. That is the story of the cross. Jesus says that to truly understand his death on the cross, we must first weep for ourselves. We must look at the cross through the tears of our own sorrow over our own guilt and our own sin. Only then do we understand the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that what we should realize in this moment is that there is something about me. There is something in me that is guilty, that is wrong, that is broken. Weep for yourselves. And we see this clearly in two images. The darkness that covers the land and the veil that's torn in two. All the Gospels clearly tell us, if you read through the crucifixion's accounts in all the Gospels, they clearly tell us that the critical events surrounding Jesus' death happened in darkness. He's betrayed in darkness. He's led away to a trial where he's unfairly accused in darkness. He's unfairly accused in a trial in darkness. He is taken out and crucified and creation itself cannot hold its light on Calvary. Darkness throughout the Bible, a clear sign of God's judgment on sin. And according to the Bible, our most fundamental problem is inward darkness. The dark night rises. I got chills just watching the scene over again as I looked it up on YouTube today to get the quote right. But you'll remember uh, Batman has gone down into Bane's lair to fight him and confront him, right? And as he's losing the fight, he goes to his last bag of tricks, and that's to cut all the lice off. But Bane just laughs. You remember this? This is what Bane says to Batman. Oh, I wish I could do the... If I could do the voice, that would be awesome, but I can't. He says, Oh, you think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man, and by then it was nothing to me but blinding. The shadows betray you because they belong to me. This is it, y'all. The Bible says that we are born not neutral. It says we are born like Bane because we are born in the darkness. Paul goes so far as to say in Ephesians 2 that before and apart from Jesus, we were by nature children of wrath. 
Same guy that said, all by, um, um, through him, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know that verse, right? He also said that apart from that one, we are by nature children of wrath. We're not born neutral. We're born bent on having our way against the will of God. And the Bible says that is darkness. And we've all experienced darkness, okay? Uh, no, I don't think any of us in here would say that we've never experienced darkness. There's some of us in here um, that have experienced uh, the darkness of depression, right? Maybe really familiar to some of you or maybe someone you know. When everything in your life, no matter what you try to think about, no matter what you try to do to distract yourself, everything seems wrong and nothing seems right. Others of us have experienced existential darkness. Why am I here? What am I doing? What is the point, especially when the world is going to hell outside of this place, right? Others of us have experienced the darkness of our own repeated choices. That no matter what I do, I cannot stop doing that which does me no good, even though I know it does me no good. The Bible, and here's the thing, the, the Bible doesn't say that our problem is that just that we are in the darkness. The Bible says our problem is, is we love it. John chapter 3 verse 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The story of the cross, here it is, is that we have a problem. That there is condemnation on our head. That the wrath of God against sin is against us. And Jesus calls us to weep for that. And here it is. He calls us to weep for that. Because only when we see that rightly can we see our only hope. A crucified Savior, weep for yourselves so you can see what is happening here today. A Savior is crucified. And that leads us to the last point here. The last one is the salvation of the cross. The beauty of the story is that it doesn't end here. You kind of feel that swelling, right? It's Friday, but... Anybody got it? Sunday's coming, right? That famous sermon. Look it up if you've never heard it. It's great. The beauty of this story is that it doesn't end here. It's just the beginning. You and I have a problem of eternal significance, but there is salvation, definitive salvation in this cross. Because what was true of us, our darkness and our love of the darkness has been fully and definitively dealt with at this cross. That is what it's telling us. And here's the question. How in the world, if our problem is that bad, how can that be true? I point you to another gospel, but Jesus himself, John chapter 3. We get a very familiar story. Um, at least we get a familiar quote out of it. In the beginning of John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, a very well-to-do religious man who wants in on this thing that Jesus is bringing. And Jesus says something very shocking to him. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Very uh, popular passage, right? Um, to which we get the, the term born again Christian. 
Um, and then a few verses later, we get the, the most familiar Christian verse of all time, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him will have eternal life, right? But right before that, verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is doing is he's referencing a very obscure Old Testament story, Numbers 21, if you want to look it up. It's one of those weird, horrifying Sunday school stories, okay? Uh, And this is what happened. Israel is wandering in the wilderness. They do what they always do. They complain to God, and God gets angry. And so he sends fiery serpents into the camp of Israel. And the serpents are biting everybody, and people are dying. And it's one of the most hellacious stories in all of the Bible. Go read it, I promise. And Moses intercedes on behalf of God's people, and God relents, and he forgives his people, and he gives Moses a means of salvation. And this is what he tells them. Take a bronze serpent and wrap it on a pole and lift it up in the camp, and all who look on the serpent will be saved. What was killing them? Serpents. What do they look to for salvation? A serpent. It's a weird story. They had to look at the very thing that was killing them in order to be saved. And Jesus looks at that story and says, just as Moses did that, so must I be lifted up. Here it is. Here it is. Jesus never committed any sin, any, none whatsoever, not even an ounce So if he is not hanging on the cross because of his sin, the only answer is because he's hanging on the cross because of someone else. And here it is. The salvation of the cross for you and me is that Jesus became what is killing you. Jesus became on the cross that which is killing you. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When we have fully understood the salvation of the cross, we have come to fully know that nothing, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Because Jesus became the darkness that is in you and he became that which separates you from God so that you would not be. That you would no longer be separated. You've got to understand this. This is how Jesus can honestly, honestly ask God from the cross, please forgive them for they know not what they do. Because I'm doing the very thing that gives them the ground to receive the forgiveness. 
He can honestly look at the thief right next to him and say, Today you will be with me in paradise. He can honestly... Uh, We can honestly believe that the veil in the temple is torn in two because now there is nothing that can separate us from the presence of God. It's how rebels, murderers, insurrectionists, addicts, perverts, racists, self-righteous, and the slanderers can be set free just like Barabbas because Jesus became one of them on the cross. Because of that, we get his righteousness. I asked this question before, I ask it again in a different way. What is holding you back from this God? Is it the hatred that you have for your parents that you cannot get over? Either because of how they treated you, because they didn't love you enough, because they disappointed you, because they didn't love each other enough. Maybe they even abused you or each other. Jesus became that on the cross. Guys, is it the fact that day after day after day after night after night after night, you cannot stop going back to the same websites over and over and over again? Jesus became that on the cross. Girls, is it that you cannot help but give your heart or even your body away to any guy that makes you feel wanted. Jesus became that on the cross. Jesus took, I don't know what it is we could spend hours talking about. Jesus took your deepest, darkest, most shameful perversions that no one else will ever know. He became that on the cross. And here it is. When he became that on the cross, in the sight of God, he bore in and of himself each and every ounce of God's holy and righteous judgment that those things deserved. So that you will never have to, ever. Some of you are so confused at why you can't just stop. You look at your life and you say, I know I need to stop this. Or you look at your life and you say, I know I need to do this. And cycle after cycle after cycle, you find yourself right back where you started, if not far gone, more far gone than you were before. You're trying to be your own savior. And Jesus says, because of what he did on the cross, you don't have to. Others of you come to a Bible study like this or you go to church or whatever and you want, what you want to hear, whether you'll admit it or not, is look at what Jesus did for you. What are you going to do for him? Or you look at this and you say, look at how much Jesus loves you. How much do you love him? And that's what you want to hear because you want to hear how bad you're doing because you're so exhausted at disappointing yourself. And you just want to get past it. You just want to be better. But here it is. The cross is telling us that it's not that you need to be a better person. It is not that you need to get yourself together. But it is that here is the one who is better. Here is the one that is perfect. Here is the one that is deserving of everything you have ever wanted. And he took your place so that you could take his. 
So that Paul can say in Romans 8 verse 1, and we can believe it, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true because of the cross. I end with this. I think this is amazing. The first time I heard this pointed out, mind blown. Every year we make a very big deal and our whole culture makes a big deal whether they celebrate it explicitly or not about commemorating the birth of Jesus. Yet Jesus never commanded us to do that. Not not wrong. I'm just saying Jesus never explicitly said, commemorate my birth. Every year we get all dressed up in pastels and we eat a lot of candy, right? And we commemorate the resurrection. Jesus never told us to do that. You know what Jesus did explicitly tell us to commemorate? His death. And not only did he tell us to commemorate his death, but he told us to do it regularly through a meal, the Lord's Supper, that we might feed on it day after day after day after day. Because he knew we were going to need it. And so Paul can tell us in his instructions on how to do the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's one verse that sums this whole thing up for us. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I'll leave you with one question. Do you know that? Do you know that it is finished? And you don't have to be your own savior anymore. And you never will. Would you believe, would you believe that there lived a man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God himself, and would you believe that the end of his life could very well be the beginning of yours? That is an invitation, and I implore you all to think it through. Let's pray. Father, who would be wise enough? Who would be gracious enough? Who would be merciful enough to give his own son in such a way that his death would secure freedom and life for us all? Father, I pray, I pray that this very night it would be just that, life. We pray it in our Savior's name. Amen.